a story for you, um, and they say that it's our personalities that God works through. So when I lay this one out there, I hope that y'all can trek with me. So about two years ago, it was a Wednesday night. It was during fall, so it had gotten dark very early. It was not a Wednesday night where when church ended, it was still light. It was dark outside, and I left the service before Mark because he likes to eat every Wednesday night, right? He's getting a taco somewhere at some Mexican restaurant with somebody who's in this space. He's going to go eat with you, but I normally trek home, and this particular Wednesday night, it was a little bit cold out, and I just, I thought, I can't wait to go home and just take a bath in my tub. It's just one of my things that's just me in, in my tub and warm water, a space where I go to relax, and so I pulled up into the driveway, and when I did, I opened the garage, like I always do, and pulled in, and upon opening my door in the garage, I heard people talking. Now, no one's at home. Nobody's home, and I hear people talking, and I'm like, oh my God, there's somebody in my house. Like, I think there's somebody in my house. What do I do? Like, what do you do when you open the garage and you hear somebody in your home? And I have one ear, right? I'm deaf in one ear. So I'm like doing the, I'm like circling. And we're like, is it, is it in the house? I'm like, oh my God, it's in the house. I go into the house. So with hearing noise in the house and I put my ear to the basement and I was like, is somebody in the basement? And I'm, I'm leaned in and I'm thinking, no, I don't hear anybody anymore. So then I closed myself in the house and I closed the garage behind me. So, and I do what you do in every Lifetime movie. It is, I go straight to my bathroom having thought that I heard people in my house and I disrobe. So now I'm naked and in my bathroom having thought that I heard people. And so... I, my heart was a little jittery, you know, just like a little bit like there could be somebody here, but no, 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 just take your clothes off and get in the tub. So I take my clothes off and I get in the tub because that's what I had wanted to do. So I'm laying in the tub, I turn the water off and immediately I hear the people in my house again. I know, and I'm laying in there and nobody's home and I've closed myself up and I'm in the bathroom and I'm naked and I'm, I'm just sitting in a tub of water hearing people in my house and I'm extremely panicked. So I'm extremely like, what in the world did you, what do you do when you're in the bath and there are people in your house and you're there and you're just, you have, I had no phone by me because I'm in the tub. I'm like, what the crap am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I did again, what most people do in a lifetime movie is I get out of the tub and I began to plot my way from my bathroom back to the garage, right? From my bathroom back to the garage. And so I didn't dry off. I just stepped out of the water and I grabbed my pajamas and I just put them on soaking wet, trying to be oh so quiet because if the people in my house hear me, they're going to come kill me. And this is really going through my mind. They're going to come kill me at any minute. So I get dressed and I start tiptoeing and I thought, nope, you know, don't, I mean, just like God, don't let the dog bark, don't let anything weird happen. And so I tiptoed, made my way into the garage. Thankfully, the axe murderer had not come to get me yet. And I jump into my car, lock the door, open the garage, back out, and I sit in front of my house and I call Mark finally. I'm like, there's somebody in the house. He's like, where are you? So I'm like, I'm outside the house. He's like, well, how do you know somebody's in the house? I tell him the whole story. And he's like, you mean to tell me? <laughs> That in the middle of you thinking that somebody is in our house, you went into the house 
and took a bath. I said, well, yes. <laughs> what is so weird about that? So, just, I mean, what, I don't understand. Why is that a weird thing? Get home now and come get whoever it is out of the house. I can't go back in kind of thing. So I wait there frantically wanting to call 911. He told me to restrain, so I didn't. Sat in the driveway, just waiting and waiting with my lights on, just like, what am I going to do? Engine still running, like waiting on them to come out of the house. Nobody ever came. He came home. There's nobody in the house. The next morning, we found out that there were two little kids outside of our house playing right beside me. That window is by the bathroom window. So the, the point of that story is that in the middle of panic, we don't really think straight. So, we just do all sorts of, of crazy, stupid things. And so I, my message to us this morning is we've got to stop panicking in the middle of trouble, in the middle of being between a rock and a hard place, in the middle of being in a situation that we don't want to be in, that we feel like there's absolutely no way out of. We have got to stop panicking. We are God's people. He covers us. Us, he owns us. He has bought us with a price. And yet every time I face, I find myself facing a challenge, something that makes me uncomfortable, something that, that causes me to not be at ease, something that causes me to want to preserve myself, I have an opportunity to either trust him or to begin to panic. Because I'm so concerned about saving this self and my eyes get totally wonked and I end up doing crazy things. So we're going to talk about how not to do some crazy things today. So get your Bibles and let's turn to Exodus 14. Exodus 14, we're going to begin in verse 10. We're going to read from verse 10 to 18. And we're talking about the Israelites this morning as they approached the water. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked. Now, for those of you who, who have walked with the Lord for a while, you understand this story about the Israelites in the book of Exodus is a mirror image of us who are God's people. The Israelites were God's chosen people who had been in slavery for 430 years. That's a long time to be in slavery and to be in bondage. And God showed up and he has delivered them from those people. The chapters before, just so you know where we're at in the story. The chapters before are where the 10 plagues came in. So there had been 10 miracles that God had already performed as he's delivering his people by his hand, his might, his power, nothing of their own strength. And now they are sitting here um, at the precipice of where God wanted to take them across a sea on dry land. So they have these people behind them where they have been delivered and they have a spot where they're trying to go in front of them. And there is no way through. And so that's where we're at in the story, just for those of you who need a little bit of history on it. So Pharaoh is approaching them. He realizes that he's let them go and he is, he is not quite yet done with him. The people of Israel looked up and they panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why have you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. 
But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. And the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people, get moving, pick up your staff, raise your hand over the sea, divide the water so that the Israelites can walk through the middle up the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They will charge after the Israelites. Listen to this. If you underline anything today, if you circle anything today in in the word, if you get anything about what I'm saying today, I want you to get and understand this. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots, his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all of Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. What I want for you today is I want for you to have a perspective shift when it comes to adversity in your life. I want for you to understand that instead of panicking in the middle of adversity, there is an opportunity and a choice that can be made that will bring God glory on this planet, in this place. God's purposes from the very beginning of creation is to make himself known, period. It's not to make me known, it's not to make you known, it's not to make my dream come true, and it's not to make your dream come true. God's purpose is that his glory is revealed in the planet. We just sat here and sang a song, and Pastor Phil alluded to it a little bit at the end when he was ministering to us. Do we really mean it when we say that Jesus is all we want? Because when we're in the middle of the moment that we can't get through and we can't go back in the middle of a spot where panic wants to show up, I'm not sure that that's exactly what we want. Most of the time, we want to save ourselves. That, that's really what we want more than anything. We just want to be okay. We think, I just want to be okay. It's how we approach all of life. It's what I was thinking that day in the garage. I wasn't thinking, was I now naked and wet in a tub of water with a stranger in my house, right? I was just thinking, I just want to be okay, right? We just want, we want everything to be okay and we want to be okay. But how many of you know, if you've, if you've been alive for any length of time, life is hard. Life throws us some stuff. It throws us challenges and it throws us a struggle. It throws us opportunity to have to move and work and bend and and become something that we're not all the time, every day. It's what, it's what life is for me. It's an all the time, every day. It's a thing. Am, am I going to resurrect myself and live in this moment or am I going to figure out how to let God live through me? How to allow him to get glory and let the circumstance not be about me? And so I find myself sometimes, I told y'all this was about me, I find myself sometimes when I'm in the middle of facing some of those things that are not comfortable and cause me pain, and they're different for everybody, and the things that bother me probably don't even bother you, right? Because we're individual with our, our own individual quirks, the things that make us up and make us enjoy life and who we are. So, so there are things that irritate me sometimes, and they bother me, and inevitably I find myself in a state of pain over them. 
I would love to not panic when things don't go my way. But when I look back over my journal and I look at some of the things that I write, I'm like, Ugh. just two weeks ago, I wrote, oh my God, I miss my house in Sylvania. I just miss Sylvania. So just so many good memories in Sylvania. I just don't know that I'll ever, ever just love my house here. And I'm, I'm just this huge journal entry about missing yesterday all because of facing adversity, right? Not because of anything that, that makes sense at all. Panic says this, it's a sudden, the definition of panic is it's a sudden uncontrollable fear or anxiety that often causes wildly unthinking behavior. Yes, yes. Do you ever have just thinking behavior that is just wild and you're like, how did I end up here? How did I end up at this train of thought? That, that this is where I'm at. It, that's what panic does. When we can't make one and one equal two, we will just start devising all these things of what could have been, what should have been, how things should happen, how they need to happen. And we start thinking, well, if I wouldn't have stepped here and I would have stepped here, then surely something else would have happened. And maybe if I would have stepped here and we just begin to come up with and concoct all these plans and these things that, that we think are going to bring solution to us when all the while God is saying, hey, I'm leading you somewhere. I'm sovereign over your life. We have, we have but two options. We trust him or we panic. We, there, there really is no middle. We trust him or we panic at coming up with our own stuff. I, I look at what the Israelites did, and if you'll look back in the verses ahead, it said after they panicked, they began to cry out to God. But their cry out wasn't a cry out to him. Their cry out was a whining kind of cry out. Their cry out wasn't a, oh Lord, we know you have saved us. Look what you just did. You just sent 10 plagues on the people who had held us captive for 430 years. Their cry out wasn't, we see that we have escaped our bondage with all of their loot. Every bit of cattle they had, every bit of riches they had, every bit of food they had, they took it all from the Egyptians when God was rescuing them and Nothing. They, they remember none of that. It's been what? Just a short little journey. They have forgotten that. They have forgotten how can you, I mean, I, I put myself in this story and I think, well, I, I mean, I am these people. So how do you forget that the Lord struck all of the firstborn sons dead in the enemy's camp? And mine survived. Because I'm a child of God. And then I'm in the very first bit of struggle and I just start crying out to him. Not crying out in faith, but in whining complaints. Just whining complaints. Forgetting who they were in Christ. Forgetting what had been done for them. Forgetting that God had already delivered them. Forgetting all of that. Last year, Sela was um, at a competition and... 
when she 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 did her full, somebody else did, no, no, no. She was throwing them up in a basket. She threw a kid up in a basket, um, and when they came down, their foot kicked her and landed her, on her neck. So she had to go through that competition, and I'm watching her go through that competition, not knowing like what happened when her neck got hit. So she left that competition just feeling, um, A, like her neck was broken, but also feeling defeated and embarrassed and humiliated and like, I just can't believe that happened, and I let the team down, you know, just all the things that you when you're in competition cheer. The next competition came for the next weekend, and on the first day, that was a two-day competition, and on the first day of the competition, she would not throw the girl, and she would not throw her full. So there were, there were two things that the team was getting deductions on because Stella was in fear. It was a two-day competition, so we left on Saturday knowing that we had to go back on Sunday night. So I've got a kid who got kicked in the head the week before, is now not performing because of the fact that she got kicked, and we're on day, we're, we're on the night before the final competition of a two-day event, and I'm in the car with her. And I mean, if you have a teenage girl, you just don't, I mean, if you don't have one, you really don't understand what it means to live. And if you've had four of them, it's just, I mean, I... I sometimes wonder when I keep Johnny Love and there's only one I was like I don't know how I did this four times like I genuinely don't know how I did it so Stella is in the front seat oh my god I'm never this is the worst thing tomorrow is gonna be horrible it is just gonna be awful like I already know I'm not gonna be able to do it I don't even know why I do this I don't know why I've done it since I was four why do I do? I mean over and over and over and how many of you have ever tried to console a dramatic teenager it doesn't work. So there was no me saying to her, Stella, get yourself together. Stop your mouth. Stop your whining. Stop all this nonsense that's coming out of your mouth. And so what I did is I put a song on the radio and from the Mercedes-Benz Stadium all the way to my driveway, I played it on repeat as loud as I could in the car so that she just could not talk. And the song says this. It says, I prophesy into your tomorrow that it is going to be better than you are today over and over and over and over and she's just looking at me and I'm just like repeat 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 over and over and over tomorrow is going to be better than it is time for some of us to instead of whining to the Lord about what's not happening what we can't see what we can't grab hold of what we can't figure out it's time for us to use our mouth instead of whining use it to prophesy into your tomorrow to prophesy what you believe that you believe that it is going to be better than. Tomorrow is going to be better than what you could think, better than what you could imagine, better than what your circumstances have been, better than what you think. And I don't care if you have to, to put it on just in your ears all day and all night long until you train this mouth to do something besides whine, something besides complain, something besides telling somebody something that's negative. Let me tell you something about your future tomorrow where you are tomorrow, who you are tomorrow, and what you accomplish tomorrow starts today and it starts right here. Your words are the predecessor for where you are at tomorrow. And because they're panicked, they're now whining, they're speaking the wrong things, they're letting wrong things come out of their mouth, and then the Bible goes on to say they started blaming. We always want to blame. We always want somebody to take the fall. It has to be somebody's fault. 
has to be our mama's fault, our daddy's fault. That's the big one now. It's, it's whatever, whatever somebody didn't do right and well for us, it is their fault that I'm in the predicament that I'm in and that I'm where I'm at. Let me tell you something about life as a Christian. If you study scripture, every promise in scripture, everything in scripture, including Jesus having to come from the heavenlies onto the planet and then become our savior, every bit of it is about a struggle. There's a principle called seed, time, and harvest. Don't have time to preach about that one today, but you will find it from Genesis all the way to Revelation. There is no harvest that there is not a seed that is planted somewhere in your life. Do you know how seeds produce? Seeds produce in the dark, in a very dark, tight spot. They have to be nourished properly. And they go through a struggle to burst forth out of whatever shell it is that they are encapsulated by before there is ever fruit. It is true of me. It is true of you. It is true of Jesus. It is true of words. It is true of circumstances. It is true of every promise of God. Without a struggle, there's no fruit. And it's amazing to me that they're blaming somebody and they're discounting the sovereignty of God. I know we don't like to talk about the sovereignty of God in spirit-filled, charismatic churches where we can name it, claim it, and stand on it, and believe it, and quote it. We just think there should be nothing that would ever come our way that should ever cause any kind of struggle, that should ever cause me to have to doubt and wonder, and ever cause me to have to put my feet down firmly. But I'm telling you, God is sovereign. And the thing that makes struggle good is that God all already knows the end. You don't know the end. God knows the end. If we go back and look at scripture in Exodus 14, 1 through 4, here's what God said about it. The Lord, before we read what was happening earlier, this is what God had originally said about it. The Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Who gave them to him? The Lord. The Lord gave these instructions. Order the Israelites to turn back and camp by Phiharioth between Migdal and the sea. Camp there along the shore across from Baal Zephon. Then Pharaoh will think the Israelites are confused. They're trapped in the wilderness. And once again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after you. I have planned this. He planned what? He planned this struggle for them? I have planned this in order to display my glory through Pharaoh and his whole army. After this... Knowing, I know what's going to go on, and I've got a plan for this. After this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites camped there as they were told to do. The reason we exist on this planet is to bring him glory. Period. The reason we exist is to bring him glory. So when we're going through difficult times, instead of blaming someone and instead of thinking, how the heck did this happen? How did I get myself in these, this situation, this circumstance, this thing that's coming against me? Maybe we need to ask God, what are you doing right now? And what do you need me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you need me to hear? What do you need me to say? How do you need me to act? 
how do you need me to represent you on this planet right now? Because life is not about you. I know in this Western Christianity culture that we've developed, we really do treat God like he's our lucky rabbit's foot. And he's here to make my dreams come true, baby. He's here to give me the house that I want, the car that I want, the dream that I want, the platform I want, the people that I want, the building that I want, the building I want out back, all the people in the little seats. He's here to just make my ministry dreams come true, my dreams for my children, that they would marry well and that they would all have children and families that are whole and healthy and follow after him. We just, we clothe all these things, these good things, with here it's it's my dream and it's what God's got to do no I'm here for his glory he's not here for mine he's not here he's not here to build me a house he's not here to give me a career he doesn't exist to give me a family and I'm not here for those things I know those are good things some of those are very good things but that's not why we're here is he getting glory from your life? If I came right now and gave you a microphone, how is he giving glory to the planet through your life right now, through the struggles, in the dark spaces, in the spaces that you can't explain? in the spaces that belong to him. Then the Bible says, they go on. And here's where, here's where I found myself, which is why I even ended up in this passage anyway. I found, my, found myself at the end of verse, I don't know what verse it is because my Bible just has it all written together, but it's in the first passage that we had up. And it says this, it says, Israel said to Moses, didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Better to be a slave in Egypt? Better to go back and be a slave in Egypt? I'm not sure about that. Is it better to be in bondage? If you're not careful in the middle of panic, you will romanticize everything about yesterday. Just talk to the talk to the little girl who leaves the little boy who is a jerk and who's abusive, says mean things, hurts her, hits her on occasion, speaks down to her, and she finally gets away. And she finally gets away and she's free and you're just like, oh my God, thank you. Could you not see? Like, that was just horrible. Could you not see? Give her about three months of loneliness. What does she start thinking? She thinks, well, it wasn't that bad. I mean, it wasn't. Was it that bad? I mean, I don't think. I mean, okay. I mean, we got in an argument or two, but nah. It wasn't that bad. And they go right back. Ten years later, they're going right back, right? And it just happens over and over. It's what we call toxicity. When we're attracted to the things that have been bondage to us in the past, but we somehow have romanticized them and made them, made them just memories in our head that were just these great, glorious things. And this is where I was in my journal. It's actually where I was. I was just like, God, I mean, there are just some things not happening 
right now that I want to happen right now. And so in my journal, I just started with, I, I just must have been having, I don't know, hormonal day. I'm just like, I miss Sylvania. I miss my house. I miss Main Street. I miss that small town. I miss those people. I miss that church. I miss, and I mean, it's just like everything, just writing, 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 writing. The next day I looked at it, I was like, have you lost your ever living mind? Do you know what was left for me in Sylvania? Absolutely zilch. Absolutely zilch. There was nothing there left for me, period. No people, no relationships, no family, nothing, nothing, nothing was there. And then here I am writing my journal, just romanticizing everything that's there. You know why? Because we take this picture to God of what we, we really think life is supposed to look like. And we're told to do that as Christians, aren't we? We're told, write the vision, make it plain. Write the vision and make it plain. Show God what you want. And then we take it to him. And, and when, when real life starts happening, and it's not just this little picket fence picture that we've written on a piece of paper and there's a challenge or two in the middle of it. It's not just a little white house with a little picket fence with a little tree and a swing and two kids and a dog. And we've taken it to God and we're like, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what happens when that, when that is a challenge. It's the women I talked to have been married to drug addicts for 17, 20, 25 years. And they refuse to do anything about it. Because they're holding on to this picture instead of being able to take a step towards any kind of sanity in their life. And they're just repeating dysfunction year after year after year. Because struggle wasn't supposed to be a part. It was just supposed to happen like this. Stuff doesn't always just happen. It's not just happening for the Israelites. Why isn't it just happening? Why isn't it just happening? It's because God is sovereign and he wants to do something in your life through the struggle. I know we don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like struggle. I don't like when I have to evaluate myself and think, where, where am I missing it here? What am I not doing? What am I refusing to do? The Bible goes on in the next passage. Thank you for the slides, Mark. That's what we can all say. Thank you for no slides. Okay. Um, this is working, though. I'm figuring it out. Okay. Next passage, Exodus 14, 15 through 8, says this after they've whined to Moses. And Moses, he's young in his leadership. He's just taken them from captivity. So he's got a long time with these people, 40 years coming. So Moses learns a lot. But at this moment, he begins to cry out to God on behalf of the Israelites. And God answers him. In Exodus 14, 15, he says, Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Now, Moses had just told them, just stay here, stay here, stay still. Stay still, you're going to see God deliver us. You're going to see God is about to come through. Just stay still, be patient. God's got this. Moses is just trying to cover it up a little bit, like, like God, I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to do something because you got me out here with all these people and you need to show up. And, and the Lord shows up and he says, why are you, why is this my deal really is what God's saying why why are you telling me to do something tell the people to do something 
tell the people to do something, get moving, pick up your staff, raise your hand over the sea, you divide the water so that the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. I'm like, what? And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians. They're still going to charge after you. But my great glory is going to be revealed through Pharaoh, his troops, his chariots, his charioteers. And when my glory is displayed, all of Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the God. Miracles don't happen when we just sit here and wait. They happen when we stop panicking and we get moving. We have to do something. We have to put our feet to something. One of the greatest travesties, I think, in both Mark and I's life when we were young, I don't know if it was just a theology that was floating across teaching. I don't know where we got it, but there was this thing of you better not take a step until you know that you know that you know that it's God. Now that sounds real good, doesn't it? It is true. We don't want to miss God. We don't want to outstep him. We don't want to go right if he said go left. So there's a lot of truth to hearing the voice of God. But there is also a lot of truth to the fact that the word of God tells us that the Lord is ordering my steps. And he cannot do anything lest I'm taking a step. He, can't, he just doesn't take just a lump of clay and make something happen. He doesn't move our arms. He doesn't move our mouth. He doesn't move our eyes. He doesn't move our bodies. He does not take action for and on behalf of us and I can't think of the things that I've missed because I've just sat there waiting sat there waiting on God to do something waiting on him to show up waiting on him to show out waiting on him to take control waiting on him to give me a miracle waiting on him to do whatever it is that's going to be some great miraculous story that he's going to do no miracles rest on the other side of our action you can find it over and over and over again in scripture and he says to Moses take what I've already given you and you divide this land you do it not me But we don't like that. We've got to understand that God wants to move and he wants to perform and we are his vessels that he lives in. He lives and moves and has his being in us and we have to be ready to move and do and go. I think about John 5, the man on the mat, 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. 38 years sitting there, waiting on a miracle. 38 years in the middle of bondage. 38 years in the middle of a place where he can't go backwards and he can't go forwards. And the audacity of the Savior. Now, we know that we know. All God, I mean, God created the world just with a word, right? Just by the, the very breath of his lungs, he creates. We know he could have just boomed a giant voice from heaven and said, sea split, and it would have happened. He's the maker of the sea. He's the maker of the mountains. He can move them. He can speak to them. He can shift them. He can shift the sands. He can do whatever it is that he wants to do with his booming, powerful voice. And we know that day when he walks by the man who is holding the mat at Bethesda and sitting there laying on it, we know that God could have said, be well and touch him. And that's not what he said to him. He said, pick up your mat. 
pick it up, stand up, walk. It's just how God works. He requires something of us. I think about Hannah when she desperately wanted a child. If you don't know the Old Testament story, go read it. She was going to be the mother of Samuel, but she was barren. For years, she was barren. And she would go to the priest every year, and when she would go, some other woman would come and stand beside her and taunt her. Taunt her because her prayers weren't being answered. And the Bible says this. There's a passage in the Bible that says, one day, not after God had moved, before God had moved, Hannah stood up in that temple. She stood up and she made a promise and a decree to the Lord that maybe would not have come outside of the struggle. Maybe God knew that. The Bible says that God was the one who made her barren. How can we fathom that and wrap that around the sovereignty of God when we hold on to scriptures that say that there never has to be a struggle? Maybe God knew. Maybe God knew that he needed somebody who would mother Samuel so that he could do what needed to be done for the nation of Israel. And so he had to have her be desperate for him. Be desperate for him. I think about Lazarus when he was in the tomb. We all know that story. Jesus could have gotten there in plenty of time. We know the story. You know when he got there? He didn't even move the rock. The audacity. He's let him die, and he didn't move the rock. He said, somebody else moved the rock. When he's feeding the 5,000, I mean, he can create everything out of nothing. It's how he did it in Genesis 1-1. And he didn't just make fish appear. He said, go find me something. Y'all go find me something, boys, to his disciples. Sit them down and feed them. We have to put action to this thing. We have to move. We can't live in panic mode. We can't live in a mode where we just don't do anything. God is not withholding from us. He's not holding back. It is time for us to move on with what we have. Here's what bothered me the most. I think the biggest fracture in my life, I don't know about yours, but one of the biggest fractures I have and what I believe is in the church today is that we as the church, we don't believe God or believe that we are equipped when it comes down to it. I'm just not sure we do. We love to sing about it. We like the goosebumps. We like how it feels. We like to congregate together. We like how Sunday morning feels. But you let us bump into something. Let us bump into something that disappoints us and discourages us and isn't a part of the plan and the picture that we've taken to God before and we've said this is how it's supposed to look I I want to believe so much about God and then I find myself saying why do I not why do I not believe you just when the rubber hits the road he's looking for a people that believe him 
and take him at his word, even in the middle of hell, even in the middle of circumstances that we do not figure out, that we can't figure out, that we can't finish in and of ourselves, that we can't make work. And I have found myself over and over and over and over again having these freak out moments where I panic and I want to pull back because it's uncomfortable and it doesn't feel good and it requires something out of me. And I'm telling you that my, my tendency is I'm okay when it's me. I'm not okay if my kids are hurting. I'm not okay if my kids are confused or if my kids are disappointed or if my kids go through anything. If there's anything that makes me want to shrink back, it's, it's I expect God to do A, B, C, and D with my kids. I just expect it. And when it doesn't happen, I get pouty and I start writing things in my journal that I shouldn't write. Because I panic. And he's not looking for panicked people. And you know what really makes me sad about this? Is Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. And this is where I had to check myself. In Hebrews... The Bible says this, it's why the Holy Spirit says, today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And I'm thinking, if I got a hard heart? Don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. And I'm like, what? Is to not trust him rebellion? The Bible says faith is what pleases God. They tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them. And I said, their hearts always turn away from me. In the middle of your darkest moment, are you panicking or are you trusting Because what I see as panic, God sees as a hard heart. I don't want to have a hard heart. He was angry with them and he said, their hearts turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They're never going to enter my place of rest. They didn't. Can you imagine having walked, like literally, I mean, put yourself there. I mean, because we freak out, what, if our kid doesn't make all A's. We freak out if our kid has a cold. We freak out if our kid is anxious. We freak out if our kid gets depressed. We freak out if our marriage falls apart. We freak out if we can't pay a bill. Can you imagine... Can you imagine walking in between walls of water? That the only refuge for you was to have that big of a miracle come through? And you're walking between, God, I can't even imagine how high the walls would have been. I can't imagine taking that hike through that area to my freedom. Yeah. 
can you imagine having done that and you still don't make it in? And you know who makes it in? Praise him, you can come on up. You know who makes it in? Little prostitute named Rahab. Somebody who we would snub our nose at. The Bible says this when it begins to talk about the story of Rahab. Israel had crossed over. They had crossed over the Jordan. They were getting ready to begin to possess Canaan. And they come to this little town of Jericho where they went to spy out the land. And when, when they met Rahab and started talking to her, I don't have the scriptures pulled up, when they started talking with her, here's what she said to the spies. She's like, oh my God, can you please take me with you? We are terrified over here because of the testimony of the miracles of what your God has done. We've already heard about it over here and we're scared to death. Please take me with you and let me go. She entered, she's in the lineage of Jesus. And his own people, his own people didn't enter into rest. I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be my story. Just because I face things that I don't like or they're uncomfortable or I panic and I start doing stupid things like taking my clothes off and getting in the tub. Here's what salvation is. Romans 8, 31 through 39. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose if God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition? Yeah, I'm out. It's fine. Y'all can hear me. Still on? Okay. All right. Can y'all hear me now? Okay. Okay. It just cracked me. All right. So what do you think? With God on our sides like this, how can we lose if God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son? Is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us. There's no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this faces us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced 
that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. That is what it means to hold on to him. Stand to your feet. My prayer for you this morning is that whatever you're facing today, whatever struggle you find yourself in this morning, that you would be willing to stop panicking, stop whining, crying, blaming, and for goodness sakes, stop romanticizing the past. Stop letting, you know, the past has such power over us that people are making money by just teaching us to be 1% different than we were yesterday. So much power the past has, and we can't even do that. 1% different. Can you just be 1% different than you were yesterday? People are making billions of dollars off of that concept because the past is powerful. It wants to hold you. It wants to keep you. It wants to torment you. It wants to lie to you, and it wants to deceive you. You don't want to be a deceived person today. You want to enter into his rest. I want to enter into his rest. I want to enter into absolutely everything he's got for me. And you know what that is? It's not my house. It's not my home. It's not my car. It's not my clothes. It's not my nails. It's not my hair. It's it's his glory. It's not even this house. It's not even this property. It's not even this message. It's not even what I can do for him. It's not even me crafting and creating my best gift and laying it before me. It's his glory. It's so that when somebody would look at my life and they would know my story, that somehow in that... They would come to know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and who he is for him. That's the only reason I'm here, period. It is the only reason you're here, period. It's about him and it's about his glory. Him and his glory. What kind of glory is he getting from your life today?